welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our meditation this morning in preparation for worship comes from our lectionary reading of Philippians 3, 7 through 11. And these are the very words of God. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we enter your presence with godly fear, awed by your majesty, greatness, and glory, but also encouraged by your love. We are all poverty-stricken and all guilt having nothing of our own with which to repay you. But we bring Jesus to you in the arms of faith, pleading his righteousness to offset our iniquities, rejoicing that he will weigh down the scales for us and satisfy your justice. And all people belonging to God said, Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all those who call upon him. To all who call, call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, strengthen us to give you no rest until Christ reigns supreme within each of our hearts. In every thought, word, and deed, in the faith that purifies the heart, overcomes the world, works by love, fastens ourselves to you and always clings to the cross. All praise and honor and glory to Christ, the victorious King, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. This portion of our service is we call the exhortation. And I think we all have an understanding of the concept of what an exhortation is and what it should do. And it prepares us to move into a, a time of confession because we are in the presence of Almighty God. He is here with us. We're gathered in his name, and we know what our Lord and Savior told us about that. 
So as I thought about this and, and the things I might say up here this week, I thought about how quickly this week, for me anyway, uh, maybe not you all, but for me, has just flown by. There, There's been a lot that's happened this week. As I pondered the theme for today's exhortion, certainly that we're at no loss or there's no deficit of things to talk about. Think, talk about our trust in God and, and his, his beautiful and wonderful care for us in the midst of trial and tribulation. In the situation faced by our beloved Murky family as the life of their eldest son Elias was threatened by his violent motorcycle accident has been at the forefront of my mind and I imagine yours as well. That's who we are. That's how we operate. And as I thought about this week, I have no doubt that God wanted to reinforce some truths about himself and about about us as, as well. I thought about how precious this life is that God has granted us. I thought about how fleeting our time on this earth really is in the context of eternity. I thought about how petty we can be in holding grudges against those who we love very much and how that must grieve God. I thought about how Christ has bought us with the highest of prices and that amidst the most terrible of circumstances in our lives, he will hold us fast. I thought about how much time Luke and Anna spend in the Word and that God used his Word to remind them of his love for them and render so much comfort and strength to them. I thought about the five brothers, our little brothers in Christ, frightened and nervous for their big brother, and how the Savior would comfort them and drive home to them how important they are to him and each other. Here I thought of the passage in Romans 5 that most of us, many of us are familiar with. And Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given who has been given to us. I thought about this church and how we all understand the gravity of this event and immediately went to work on our knees to lift this family that is is as close to us as is our own flesh and blood. I thought about how we grieve together when someone is hurting. And I thought about how we rejoice together when someone is glad. And to behold Elias on Wednesday in the hospital, what an uplifting surprise Joe and I had as to the remarkable physical recovery and healing that God had begun in him. But the most remarkable thing was the healing within him, evidenced by something Elias said to his parents and to Joe and me in that hospital room. Our young brother in Christ spoke about the massive realization and understanding of how precious he is to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let me share this reminder as a final thought with you. That is true for all of us who are in Christ. We are precious to our God and Savior. I remember as a young Christian, I didn't quite know how to take John when he would refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I have adopted that, and it is an attitude that we should all have. See how that reality affects our walk with God, that we are loved by God and that we are precious to Him. And see also how that mentality affects your relationship, our relationship with sin, and leads us to repentance. 
So in that spirit, in that understanding and grasping that truth that is so vital to us, it's so important, it's so fundamental, that we know that this magnificent God whom we worship, who no other deserves worship than our God, has that attitude and has that love for us, has that personal love for us and care for us. No matter what, no matter what the outcome is, God is still good. And no matter what the outcome is, God loves us and cares for us. With that in mind, as we move into now our period and time of confession, please let me pray. We bless you, Lord, that great sin draws out great grace, that although the least sin deserves infinite punishment because it is done against an infinite God, yet there is mercy for us. For where guilt is most terrible, there your mercy in Christ is most free and most deep. So now, as you are able, I would invite you to kneel with me as we confess our sins together. The Lord and giver of life tells us in Proverbs 28:13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let us joyfully sing the doxology in response to this awesome and glorious news. Our text this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. These are the very words of God. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And you therefore have received Christ, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we approach your word this morning awestruck at the power it contains. It is the very revealed word of your Son, and it contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask that you would open our eyes and ears to these treasures. And that we would be strengthened in our faith and be given full assurance and understanding of this mystery that is the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We've spent three weeks in the first chapter of Colossians. And during this time, Paul, during chapter 1... Paul has been telling us that as saints, 
we should expect to bear fruit. Because the gospel bears fruit in us and throughout the whole world, we too should expect to be fruitful in every good work and expect to increase in the knowledge of God. We've talked about how what we expect is usually what we get. And so Paul tells us that we should expect the gospel to grow in us and all around us, whether we live in Colossae or we live in Centralia. Now, in our second week, we learned that as saints, we have been qualified, qualified by the Father to be partakers of his heavenly inheritance. No longer are we lost in darkness, but now we are in the light as he is in the light. Just as uh, Brother Les has been taking us through Genesis, just as in the beginning there was darkness and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, we too were once in the domain of darkness. And the Spirit of God hovered over us and pulled us out of the deep water and transferred us out of that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into a much better one, the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now that we've been given our military transfer orders our permanent change of station, we have been called to give thanks and get to work, building up and filling out the kingdom, uh, his kingdom, uh, to which we now belong. And in week three, we explored the preeminence of Jesus as Lord over all creation and Lord over all salvation. Paul tells us that, in fact, Jesus, the coming of Christ, reveals the mystery of salvation. Before the coming of Christ, salvation was always this mysterious and out-of-reach future glory. Something that would eventually come, the Jews believed it would eventually come, but it wasn't here yet. The sanctuary was shut up. Man was cut off. In fact, the whole Old Covenant story emphasized the exclusion of God's chosen people from communion with Him. All the dietary laws, the sacrificial laws, the laws on ceremonial uncleanness, they all point to man's unworthiness and disqualification as a communicant member with the Father. Because of man's sin, he was cast out of the Garden of Eden, and God sent an angel to guard the entrance so that he could never return. Priests and cherubim guarded the entrance to the temple and the Holy of Holies, and man was never allowed to enter. Even while eating the Passover meal, even while celebrating the Passover, celebrating this meal in which God delivered his people from death, man was not allowed to eat in the presence of God, but instead was forced to eat in his own home, away from God's holy temple. The old covenant was one story of visible exclusion with a promise that one day a new Adam would come and reconcile the world unto himself. So when that man came, everything changed. When Jesus came, he redeemed his elect through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And when this, when this happened, something tremendous happened. Man was given sanctuary access. He was now called a saint. A saint gets to come into the presence of God. Not only um, he could come before the throne of grace, he could come boldly. And he could come boldly and receive mercy in his time of need. And not only this, but now man was welcomed into the presence of God, even to feast with him. We can eat a peace, we can eat in peace with God because we are no longer at war with him. Because Jesus is in the business 
of reconciling all things to himself. He has set out to reconcile all creation, including us, the image bearers of Christ. So the mystery of salvation has now been revealed through Christ. Because of this, we, his saints, we, his saints, are tasked with preaching Christ to all men. Our our task is to preach Christ to all men, all men, women, children. We call on them to repent or perish. And all that while, while we're doing this, we remember Paul's words in verse 23 of chapter 1. We continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which we've heard. So this is the work that Paul has been laboring for, and this is where we pick up in our text today of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so let's begin our our study in in chapter 2 here by briefly remembering the heroes and villains of the Old and New Testament and even church history. See, in the Old Covenant, our fathers were oppressed by many enemies. Uh, The Egyptians, the Edomites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, just to name a few. Um, And there were many heroes also during this time. And they all pictured Christ who was to come. Joseph, um, Abraham, Isaac, uh, even Samson. They all pictured a type of, uh, they were all a type of Christ. Um, In the New Covenant, our hero, King Jesus, had arrived. And he was the fulfillment of of all of those types in the Old Testament. And when he died... And he rose again and he ascended into glory and he sat down at the right hand of God in power. Something tremendous happened. He inaugurated or he set in motion the new kingdom that he had spent his whole ministry telling us was at hand. He was always saying the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is at hand. During when he did this, he also set us free from the power of sin and from the devil forever. Now. Having inaugurated the kingdom, there was a 40-year period, a generation, in which the Old and New Covenants were in transitions. They were like two ships passing each other. One was beginning, the New Covenant, and the other was being dismantled, the Old Covenant. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 8, verse 13, that, quote, the Old Covenant has been made obsolete and is growing old and ready to vanish away. So during this 40-year period, this transitional generation, our fathers were again persecuted. This time, the opposition did not come from the outside world, but from inside, from the apostate Jews, who God had given over in judgment to depraved minds. These oppressors are referred to in Scripture as Pharisees and Judaizers. Pharisees and Judaizers, and and the Jews, save for the remnant, were opposed to Christ. They were violently opposed to Christ. And because of this, God sent the Romans to destroy Jerusalem and Judaism as we know it in 70 AD. This is is, uh, indisputable. The Romans absolutely came in. They They sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they destroyed everything. And we believe that this formally ended that last generation of Jews with any connection to temple sacrifice or direct access to the oracles of God. And it brought an end, a formal end to the old covenant as it was formally understood. And so with its passing, the new creation was officially underway. And this also marked the turning point in history. This this marked the point where God stopped dealing with just one ethnic people. Um, The the, the scripture calls them a peculiar people. 
Um, but instead of just dealing with this one ethnic people, he started drawing men from all nations unto himself, from east and west and north and south. After 70 AD, the Roman Empire changed too. In the New Testament, the Roman Empire, their role was largely to protect the church from the Jews. And so their role in the New Testament changed after 70 AD. Um, They went from protecting Christians to oppressing and persecuting them. Think of the Christians who had to face lions and gladiators in the arena. The persecution of Christians, of course, also continues uh, in earnest in many places into the 21st century as well. However, there's a, there's a major change in the persecution we face now than the, they did in the Old Covenant. We are now no longer waiting in hope for Christ to come. Of course, we believe he will come again at the end of all time, but he has come. And he has, and, and Paul is telling us throughout the whole book of Colossians, that Christ is now preeminent in everything. He is king over everything. He is Lord over everything. He isn't just Lord by title, although he is. He isn't just Lord in your life, although he is. He is Lord and King over Centralia, over County Commissioner Lindsey Pollock, over Governor Jay Inslee. He is Lord over President Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. He is Lord over Mars and the Andromeda Galaxy and every atom in between. He has made all things, and in him all things consist. So in chapter 2, Paul is telling the Colossian Christians and us that the enemies of Christ and the gospel, the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the gospel have no power over us because we are complete in Christ and are rooted and built up in him and he is the head of all rule and authority. The enemies that we face have no lasting power to stand in the way of the spread of the gospel in the advance of the kingdom. They have no power with the exception of one. There is one enemy that can impede the spread of the gospel. In the words of Walter Kelly, we have met the enemy and he is us. Our unbelief will stand in the way of the kingdom. Our unbelief will cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed. We will never, beloved, we will never be defeated by outside forces, but always by our own internal lack of faith and our desire to forsake God and return to our old life of slavery. When our fathers were delivered from Egypt, no enemy could stand in their way. Think about it. They, they leave Egypt and they plunder the Egyptians. The entire Egyptian army then gets destroyed um, by the Red, in the Red Sea. The Edomites wouldn't even come out to face them. The Canaanites living in the promised land would have been driven out before them. God was literally sending in swarms of bees into the land to drive them out. Imagine living in that, in that era and, and having bees with the express intent of driving you out of the land. You would have no choice. You would have to leave. Giants, mighty men of valor, armies, chariots, horses, they all would have fallen before us. But instead, our fathers decided that they would rather have the leeks, melons, cucumbers, garlic, and onions of Egypt instead of bread from heaven. Our fathers decided that that they would prefer their familiar slavery to that of freedom by faith. Paul is warning these saints and he's warning us that there will be Judaizers who will try and deceive us with persuasive words, who will try and cheat us uh, through philosophy 
and empty deceit. They will base their arguments on traditions of men, on basic principles of this world, but never on Christ. Their argument will be this, in a nutshell. Well, Christ really isn't enough. We really ought to go back to the old covenant ways. Or we really ought to go back to our old life before Jesus. We really ought to return to our old life and the abundance of leeks and cucumbers and onions we used to have. We really ought to go back to our lives as they were before Christ claimed us as his own. This kind of faith caused our fathers to spend 40 years in the wilderness slowly dying off. And Paul is intent on warning us not to make the same mistake. We are, we are complete in Christ, and there is a clear battlefield in front of us. And on that battlefield, we are assured victory. If only we will believe and continue steadfastly in our faith in Christ and not return to our old life of slavery. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul, um, Paul is working and struggling in battle on behalf of these saints. And these are saints whom he's never met. And that word conflict there... Uh, maybe in your Bible it says struggle. or ba- um, That means a battle. And, and Paul, Paul understands that the battle that is waging is a battle between darkness and light. And so he is interceding in prayer for these saints who've, ne- who've never met him and he's never met. So truly caring for people you have never met is something I'm convinced only Christians can actually do. Uh, when our brother Eli- Elias was injured a week ago, last Saturday... He had, and Les and I talked to him about this up in the, in the hospital, he had saints earnestly praying for him, for his family, and for us as a church all around the world. All around the world. Even in war-torn Ukraine, there were churches in Russia, there were Russian churches and Ukrainian churches that were praying for him. To engage in the warfare of earnest prayer, earnest prayer on behalf of someone we have never seen in the flesh, is something the pagan world simply cannot do. Sure, they can change a profile picture showing their support of the current political fad. They can say thoughts and prayers, but in reality, the natural man only loves a very select few people. And those those are those people that they personally know. Or, more sadly, celebrities who they feel they know. Jesus tells us a plain and convicting truth in Luke 6, 32. He says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Paul is not like this. He is deeply engaged in battle on behalf of these saints he has never met. And think about this. He's doing this all while he himself is locked in prison awaiting possible death at the hands of his captors. Paul wants us to know his struggle on behalf of these saints so that we can be like him, so that we can follow him onto this battlefield with both eyes wide open, standing firm for the gospel. Uh, moving on, let's look at verses 2 and 3 together. It's, it's a bit of a run-on sentence, so I'll, I'll, I'll read it again. Um, it says, "...that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love." And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a mouthful. But in essence, at its heart, it's, it's Paul is saying that what we believe shapes what we do. As the saying goes, our theology works its way out of our fingertips. If we believe truth, we will walk in truth. If we believe lies, well, we'll live by those lies. Paul desire, Paul's desire is that these saints would be encouraged and unified in love for one another. This unity, that this unity would come about because their hearts would be fully assured in faith of the gospel. In fact, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 1, one of the things he's so excited about is he says um, he's rejoicing since he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of their love for all the saints. In other words, Paul is praying for them that he's praying that they would believe a certain type of theology and that they would believe it in such a way that their lives would be forever changed, forever changed because they would be assured of the gospel. Um, Here he describes this gospel as the mystery of God and that this theology would flow out of their fingertips as they love one another from the heart. If If we believe something, it will change our behavior. And when they do this, Paul knows that encouragement will follow. Encouragement always follows um, loving one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. And if you are loving your neighbor, you can expect God to bless you with encouragement. I believe we are often most encouraged when we are thinking about ourselves the least. We're most encouraged when we're thinking about ourselves the least. If you aren't loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ... It's because you're loving yourself instead. And when we love ourselves, we'll be discouraged. Paul desires these saints to remember, to remember and believe the riches and the treasures of the gospel. He wants them to remember what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. Because if they forget these treasures, if they forget, then they're in danger of being deceived by those who would persuade them to go back to their old lives of slavery. To forget the work that Christ has done for you, the work he has done on your behalf, to forget that is to be an impotent soldier on the battlefield. Verse 4, Paul says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Paul is teaching these saints doctrine, and doctrine matters. Doctrine is not just for theologians or for pastors. It, it matters for everybody. Les has told us before, we're all theologians. It matters for a number of reasons, but good doctrine is good protection, offers good protection. Having good doctrine protects one from being deceived by false and persuasive arguments. Nobody's, nobody's, uh, nobody's uh, deceived by false and unpersuasive arguments. They're always deceived when they're given a false but persuasive argument. To the Colossian Christians, the Judaizers were, and I use this word carefully, they were hell-bent on corrupting the purity of Christianity. They wished to corrupt it with vestigial leftovers of the Old Covenant. And they were able to be persuasive in this argumentation because it was all based on the Old Covenant, which is a treasure of wisdom and knowledge in which these saints knew well. If you remember, this is just a little of an aside. When, when the devil was tempting Jesus, he used scripture. He used argumentation from scripture. So the devil is, he'll, he'll, he'll use any means to, to, uh, to deceive us. 
the arguments that, um, that they were struggling with, they're relevant to us today. Um, but of course, we have other deceptions also that easily ensnare us. You could pick some of these at random, but um, one of Christendom's uh, current weakest cultural point is our institutions of higher education. While most of these institutions, or at least many of them, started out at a beginning of giving glory to God in some way, now they're almost entirely run by pagans. And these pagans spend their time and your children's tuition inventing new arguments and lines of reasoning for the sole purpose of muddying clear waters and causing impressionable 18 to 22-year-olds to doubt the reality of the world. We'll get to that more when we get to verse 8. Uh, Moving on to verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Okay, Paul mentions uh, his absence. He mentions it again from the saints. He knows that his absence, he knows something about that absence. He knows that it will leave them particularly vulnerable to deception. And so he encourages the saints to remember that he is with them in spirit. He says this not to manipulate them or scare them into compliance. Um, I'll always be looking over your shoulder. It's not what he's saying at all. He's expressing that he's genuinely rejoicing and excited to see their good order and the firmness of their faith. He's thrilled with this, and so he's with them in spirit. The phrase good order, um, that goes hand in hand with steadfastness. Good order requires steadfastness. And steadfastness produces good order, at least when it's submitted to the Spirit of Christ. We want to have, as Christians, we want to have good order in everything, in our marriage, our parenting, our relationships at work, at church, etc. Christians are a people of order, and we oppose chaos in all its forms. Let me say this again. We oppose chaos in all of its forms. Now, if you spent an evening... um, with Elizabeth and I at the Stout House some night, you might wonder if I really mean that. (laughs) But I do. I I really do. Uh, Even just parenting. Parenting is the glorious act of taking the foolishness or the chaos that is bound up in the heart of a child in creating good order from that chaos. Uh, If you happen to do that with nine children at once, there's going to be chaos along the way. But the goal is always good order in all things. We should strive to have clean houses. Clean kitchens, tidy homes, an organized workspace. Precisely because this shows that we are opposing chaos. Uh, we, we are up, opposing the chaos the devil loves to impose. He loves to come and just throw everything up, throw everything around. Now, obviously, this could be taken to extremes where order is worshipped and, and a messy house is certainly not automatically a sin. However, our goal should be to take dominion in all areas of life that God puts before us. And we can't take dominion without having good order. And this is perhaps most important during our weekly Lord's Day worship. One of the reasons that Les spent so much time planning out the service this week is that he wants to make sure that as we approach God and as he leads us to approach God, that we have good order, which helps to establish steadfastness, the firmness of our faith. We don't want to be guilty of breezing into the presence of the king. (coughs) But instead, we should guard our steps, as we heard last week. We should guard our steps when we come into the house of the Lord. The other way in which good order can be understood is in its military context. 
If you've ever had a chance to watch a military parade or drill, then you know good order is a beautiful thing. It's wonderful. And it's something that's completely appropriate for soldiers to engage in. It would be shameful to have a group of soldiers who call themselves soldiers going about the parade ground or even the battlefield doing their own thing and simply following their own heart. No uniform, no leader, no direction, no order. If it was a military parade, it would be shameful and an embarrassment. And if it was an actual battle, it would be fatal. We are soldiers for Christ. While we live, we are on the battlefield, helping to bring the kingdom into its fullness every day. We should think of ourselves as soldiers, and when we train our minds to think this way, having good order in worship and in the rest of our lives will be the natural outflow of this conviction. Let's move on to verse 6 and 7 together. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The beginning of the life of a Christian is a special time. It's wonderful. As newborn babes, new Christians, if they've been truly converted, yearn for the pure milk of the word. They want to be around God's people. They want to be baptized. They want to partake of the Lord's Supper, to hear from God. They want to be known by God. And this is wonderful and encouraging to see, especially for those of us who have been walking with Christ for years. However, just as a marriage cannot be sustained solely on the attraction and infatuation that first began the relationship, so a faithful follower of Christ will soon be faced with the choice of whether to continue, to continue following Christ when the honeymoon is over. They will see their old life in the rearview mirror, and they will see the hardship and the struggle that comes from fighting on this clear battlefield. They're get, you don't take up your cross without having struggle. And there's going to be that small voice in their head tempting them that perhaps they should go back. Perhaps this isn't really their battle. That voice will cause them to falsely, falsely remember how good things used to be. Some call this the deceptive rose-colored memory. The Jews experienced this in the desert when they were sick of eating manna. I've already alluded to it once, but in number seven, or excuse me, numbers 11, it says, quote, So the children of Israel also wept again. They're being pretty dramatic. They wept again and they said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. The Jews, when they were delivered, gratefully left the opposition, the oppression of their slavery in Egypt only to find themselves later discouraged and ungrateful for God's providence when he gave them hardship. When they finally got to Canaan, most had no desire to take the land or see the kingdom of Israel established, even though it was obviously a land rich with all the things and more that they had left behind in Egypt. They were miserable in their ungratefulness. For new and old Christians alike, the temptation to want to go back will be real at some point. And we must all guard against this in our lives. Paul knows this too, which is why he says that we must walk in Christ as we received Christ. Joyfully and with thanksgiving. When we've truly been converted, you know the being on fire for Christ. It's a a glorious thing to be around. 
And so we want to continue that. Thanks, and one of the ways we do that is through thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, giving thanks, is one of the most deadly weapons that we carry in our spiritual holsters. When the devil tempts us, accuses us, assails us, and tries to undo us, our response, 99 times out of 100, or maybe 100 times out of 100, ought to be to rejoice in thanksgiving. Someone, um, someone I, I think it may have been Jim Wilson, I once explained it like this. I thought this was a helpful analogy. He said our lives should be like a bucket filled to the top with with thankfulness. And when we're thrown about, when we're knocked around or otherwise abused, what should spill out and overflow and make a mess should be thankfulness. That's what should come out of us. So as new Christians and as old Christians, we must walk in Christ as we received him, as Lord over every part of our lives and with thankfulness. Kids, kids, we all have a story of how Christ saved us from sin. Uh, For you covenant children, um, our prayer as a congregation for you is that you will grow up always loving Jesus and never knowing a day that you don't love and obey him as Lord. However, there may be times when you grow in your faith in such a way that Christ becomes real to you in an entirely new way. His mercies are new every morning. So when this happens, it's a glorious thing. And the excitement that you experience during these times, kids, is real. It's a blessing. And the earnestness with which you pursue Jesus is what Paul is talking about here. When we're on fire for God, we need to remember that the only way we can stay on fire for God is through intentional, thoughtful, and daily thanksgiving. And that's not just for you kids, but it's really important to remember because sometimes kids can have this idea that you need to have some amazing testimony of how bad you used to be and how good you are now. But many of you are going to grow up always loving Jesus. But there will be a time when your faith becomes not just the faith of your father or the faith of your mother, but it'll become something distinctly real to you. And when that happens, cling to it with thanksgiving. This Thanksgiving will protect us from what's coming in verse 8. Paul warns us, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Now this verse holds a special place in my heart. When I was getting ready to move across the state to Pullman, Washington, to attend WSU, my own father prayed, prayed this morning, Uh, My own father gave me this verse to memorize with a warning that was not unlike Paul's. University, he told me, would try and cheat me with all kinds of philosophy and empty deceit. They would try and steal my convictions for Christ and would do everything in their power to corrupt what he and my mother spent the last 19 years cultivating. And boy, was he right. That's exactly what they did. WSU was a cesspool of humanistic raging against the Creator. And I'm sure WC is not the worst. But having been inoculated by, to this treachery, in giving me that verse and in giving me that exhortation, he inoculated me to this treachery. And, and, and also, it was the faithful shepherding that had gone on in the 19 years prior. But through this, through this verse and through their exhortation and through their faithful shepherding, Um, and the revealed word of God working its power in me, I never once doubted my faith the entire time I spent going to school there. In fact, I was often on the offensive. 
When we had to recite a famous speech in English 101 from memory, I, I recited Romans 6. When professors talked of millions of years ago, I rolled my eyes and chuckled to myself. And when professors in my anatomy and physiology classes slipped up and started talking about design features in the human body, I praised God that all creation, both willingly and unwillingly, gives him glory. Now that was 15 years ago. Things have changed. Um, In those 15 years, WSU and higher education in general in the U.S. have spun madly out of control in their race to the bottom of the drain. That is wokeness, critical race theory, sexual perversions. For Christian parents, these institutions are one of the most expensive ways of subsidizing your kids Um, of subsidizing your kids to apostatize. And unless your son has an incredibly hardy constitution and is willing to fight, I would not recommend we send our sons there. And it's my conviction that sending our daughters to these places is completely out of the question. Paul wants us to guard against being cheated into going back to Egypt or Judaism or naturalistic humanism. Whatever the temptation might be, we need to guard against that. One of the things as parents is we have to protect um, as we train up our kids to go out into the world to fight on this clear battlefield. Remember this, though. The enemies of the land aren't the problem. Our refusal to believe God's promises and fight like we mean it, that's the problem. Don't go back. Stay and fight. If we plan to do this, and we must, then Paul wants us to base our desire to fight our everything that we do, our, our planning of fighting, he wants us to base this all on the knowledge and wisdom, on knowledge and wisdom, not on traditions of men or philosophy, but on Christ, on the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. And he tells us why we need to do this in the next two verses. Finally, verses 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Christ is sufficient, and he is fully God. Paul is making that abundantly clear. Christ is better than angels. He is better than Old Testament dietary laws. He is better than Charles Darwin or Martin Luther King Jr. His ways are perfect, and in fact, he can be trusted in all things because he has been given total and complete victory. He is the head of all rule and authority, and there is nothing better or higher than him. All things stand and fall by him alone. Okay, hopefully I'm not belaboring that point. But the good news, beloved, is plainly here, and it's quietly tucked away in five little words. Don't miss these. You are complete in him. The reason why all of this majesty of Christ matters is because each one of you who are found in Christ are complete in him. Think about that. Christ is king, and in him dwells all the fullness of God. He is the head of all principality and rule and authority and power, and you are complete in him. Praise God. You have no need, or ability for that matter, to become a super Christian. You're complete because Jesus has made you complete. If you just trusted Christ today, or you've served him for 60 years, you are complete in him. That is the parable of the the workers of the vineyard. There is no need to become a monastic or practice asceticism, or starve yourself, or do a certain number of good works. These were all temptations that the Colossian Christians had. You are complete in Christ. 
Now, there, there is growth and maturity, of course. Uh, sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus, but that process doesn't make you more complete. You are complete. And so when you step out into the war and onto the clear battlefield that the church militant has engaged in since Christ's ascension, remember that you're complete and have everything you need to fight for the king and the spread of his kingdom. So as we close, here are three things you can do to be ready to fight on that battlefield. The first is this, prepare for battle. Get in the mindset that this is a war. We prepare for battle in one major way, by loving one another. If we aren't loving those in the household of God and our neighbor, we are in no position to fight the good fight in front of us. Our fight has to come out of love. Prepare for this by asking God for a heart of love for your family, your friends, your neighbors, and your enemies. Love each of these groups with all that you have, and do so with the confidence that you serve the King of Kings. Love those around you like a good Narnian. I've said that before, but if you'll permit me, two quotes from Lewis. I'll be quick about it. But the first passage is from Mere Christianity, where Lewis, in that book, is Lewis describes his conversion to Christianity and some of his thoughts um, prior to becoming a Christian. Um, Lewis describes in this quote what Christians were like to him, how he kind of viewed them before he was converted. He said, Christians, their very voices and faces are different from ours. They're stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. You tend to think that you are being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they need you less. Close quote. The second passage is from the horse and his boy and describes the experience that Shasta has of seeing Narnians, Lewis's allegory for Christians. Shasta's seen these Narnians for the first time. He's never seen them before. And this is how he experienced them. Quote, Instead of being grave and mysterious like most Kalormans, Narnians walked with a swing and let their arms and shoulders go free and chatted and laughed. One was whistling. You could see that they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly and didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. Shasta thought he had never seen anything so lovely in his life. Close quote. So, beloved, you serve the Lion of Judah. Leave the encouragement to him and joyfully ready yourself for battle. Secondly, battle with thanksgiving. You serve a God who will always provide for you. He always will. Remember that and thank him for all things. Thank him when you are hungry and when you are full. Thank him in seed time and harvest. Thank him for the easy blessings, ice cream. And thank him for the hard blessings, cancer, motorcycle accident, apostate children. Whatever the hard blessing might be, God is working all things for the good of those who love him. The enemy cannot abide those who rightly see that all blessings flow from God. And third, battle toward what lies ahead. Forget what lies behind. Forget the melons and the cucumbers of Egypt. To follow Christ is to forsake your old life and to give up the pleasures it contained. But we do this because there lies before us A reward, a reward that is better than all the pleasures of this temporary life. We wouldn't do this just simply to be ascetics. We're not doing this just simply to rob ourselves of pleasure. We're delaying it. We're storing the treasure in heaven so that we can inherit it in treasure in in heaven. Paul tells us this. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do 
Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So you might be surviving on manna right now, but don't go back to your old life. Don't forget those memories of your old life. They're not even real. Those are, those are all a false, a false um, uh, thought that Satan has put in your head. You were miserable before Jesus. Don't ever forget that. Press on to the joy that is before you, and Christ will bring you one day into Canaan, the promised land. And there you will find blessings abounding in 10,000 more that you didn't even think to ask for. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As we approach the Lord's table, remember what Christ has done for you. He has made you complete. You belong here at the table because Christ has made you complete. If it was up to you, if it was up to how you were feeling today or whether or not you've had sin in your life or those kinds of things, then it would be your completion would be based on something other than Christ. But Christ has made you complete. There is no room in this. There is no place in this in this building for self excommunication. Now, if you've been asked to stay away, we'd ask that you would follow the um, the uh, we would ask that you would follow the session or whoever has asked you to stay away from the table. But unless you have been excommunicated and if you've been baptized, if you belong to Jesus, you belong here. You are complete in Christ. Our fathers in the old covenant could only dream of the privilege of sitting down to a meal with God, to sit in the presence of God and to drink kingly, uh, to eat and drink kingly foods like bread and wine is something would have been too wonderful for them to believe possible. But it is. It is possible. We will recline at table as kings with the king of kings, and he will feed us with his body and his blood. So for all who have been baptized into Christ, come and welcome to Jesus. Would you rise for the charge and the benediction? The charge is this. Courage is the need of the hour. In the next generation, we will be tested as Christians within the virtue of courage like never before. So as you leave today and you climb down off of Mount Zion, go and re-enter the mission field with the settled conviction that Christ will win. Your assurance of victory will give you both courage and steadfastness in your faith. Believe Jesus will win. Now receive the benediction from Romans chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.